it, let's turn to the book of John, please, to start out tonight. I believe this is an important subject to cover every once in a while, so we've, we've covered this before a number of times, and we're covering it again tonight. John chapter 5 is where we're at to get us started. Why we Baptists believe in the eternal security of the believer. That once a person is saved, they cannot lose it. It will not be taken away. When you're saved, you are saved forever. And there are a number of reasons that we believe that. We'll just start out with a couple of verses, but we're going to give you a lot of verses. So be prepared to turn to them, take notes, write them down, because you understand there are a lot of people both on the Internet and there are numbers of churches that don't believe that you can keep your salvation or know for sure that you have it unless you do certain things to keep it. Thank God he's the one that does the keeping according to the scripture. Now, in John 5, 24, Jesus is speaking. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. I'm going to repeat that. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Amen. Give you another verse, 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. If you can lose your salvation then there is absolutely no way that you can know that you have eternal life. But he didn't say, I've given you feelings. He says, I've written these things that you may know. Now, Father, bless our time together. Lord, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture. May the sword of the Word of God do its work on hearts. And Father, we'll thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you talk about the eternal security of the believer, some call it the perseverance of the saints. That's what the Calvinists call it. And unfortunately, that term is just totally messed up. The saints do not persevere. God perseveres. It's all about Him. Uh, another name for what we're talking about is once saved, always saved. Some have called it once saved, always safe. It's been called by its attacker. It's a doctrine straight out of hell. It's called that doctrine of the devil, and it's called a license to sin. Of course, there are websites where anything that is godly and biblical is attacked. Uh, one particular site that attacked, once saved, always saved, or the eternal security of the believer, um, gave 238 questions that need to be answered. And I thought, well, this ought to be interesting because it's kind of intimidating to think, man, there are 238 questions that will convince a person that once saved, always saved cannot be true. So I looked at the first eight and I thought, well, they're interesting, but stupid. 
For instance, here's the first question. Are the Holy Scriptures or the majority of popular teachers who hold to a particular doctrine the deciding factor that makes the doctrine correct? Well, what does that prove about anything? We all know, we who hold to once saved, always saved, we hold to that because what the Scripture says. I don't hold to that because I heard that from some doctor so-and-so somewhere. I've read the book. I've read what it says, what it says very clearly. Second question, are the notes in a study Bible inspired like the actual Scriptures? Or can these notes reflect the erroneous views of the commentators? Well, I guarantee if these guys wrote a commentary, their notes would show the errors of the commentators. What's that got to do with the question? Third thing, are religious creeds and confessions man-made and therefore possibly in error? Why, of course. But what's that got to do with the subject? The fourth one, if creed, if a creed, confession, synod, etc., is contradicted by Scripture, should we immediately reject it? Obviously, yes. As a matter of fact, we reject a number of things that are in the creeds and in the confessions and the man-made synods and all that kind of stuff that we reject because they are contrary to Scripture. According to Psalm 119.99, this is the fifth thing they asked, and verse 102, does scriptural insight and understanding come from having an earned doctorate degree in theology? Well, this is nonsense, so I'm not even going to give you the other two. You can find it yourself on the Internet. But this is absolutely ridiculous. Why do we believe once a person is saved, he is always saved? I'm going to give you a number of reasons here, and I'm going to give you a number of Scripture. I'll ask you to turn to a bunch of it tonight so that you can look at it and see what it says, all right? Number one, the main reason, the number one reason that we believe once saved, always saved, is Jesus taught it. And I would never be so blasphemous as to call Jesus Christ a liar. He taught once saved, always saved. You say, where? Well, we got a number of places. Let me just go to the book of John. In the book of John, chapter 3, some familiar verses, very familiar verses. He says, beginning in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now notice that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. life. How long is that? That's forever. If you died five years from now and went to hell, did you have eternal life? No. Simple. This isn't hard. He wrote it for people to easily understand what he's saying. Next verse, you know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How long is everlasting? It's forever. If you believe in him, he says you shall not perish. So if you believed in him and then you perished, then he lied. Everlasting life. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. Turn over to chapter 4. Notice Jesus talking to the woman at the well. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Now, if we went back and read the first 12 verses, they are at the 
uh, at Jacob's well. And she had come there to draw the physical water out of Jacob's well. That's what he's referring to here. Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But then he makes a spiritual application. He says, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into what kind of life? everlasting life. We go over to John 5, 24. I read this at the very beginning of the message. Look at it carefully. Notice Jesus again talking, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Now, how long is that again? It is forever. Here is an excellent time if you could lose your salvation... Here is an excellent time for Jesus to say, but be careful because you could mess up and fall into condemnation. But notice what he says. Again, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, now get it, and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. What about that? Here we have the promise that not only do we have everlasting life, but we, like he said back in John 3, 16, shall not perish. We shall not come into condemnation, for we pass from death unto life. You can't get any clearer than that. If that's all I had and I just believe what Jesus said, that's plenty enough. But wait, go over to John chapter 6. Notice beginning in verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Now look at this. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. He has said that we shall not come into condemnation. Here he says that he would for no wise cast us out. You come to Jesus, he doesn't turn you away. Has any sinner found that he would not take him? No, not one. No, not one. He does not cast the believer out and will not, according to what Jesus Christ said. Go over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Notice beginning in verse 27. Actually, this discussion about the sheep begins in verse 1 and goes on through many verses here in John chapter 10. But notice in verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, there are some key things about this, but let's get the context. Go back to verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. What was the problem of these people? They believe not. He's in verse 26, he says, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. So he's talking to unbelievers who are not of his sheep. 
He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now notice this. And I give unto them eternal life. How long is that? That's forever. I give unto them eternal life. Now wait, he's not done. Here's an excellent opportunity for Jesus to say, but if you mess up, I'm going to throw you out. He says, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Clear. Abundantly clear. And then he goes on to say, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So he's already told me he won't throw me out. He's got the promise that I have eternal life. He won't throw me out for any reason. And he says, nobody can reach me. Nobody can pluck me out. I have the promise because I'm saved. I have the promise that I will never perish. How many times does he have to say it? But wait, you get to verse 29. My father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. So I'm in Jesus' hand. I'm in the hand of the father. Is there anybody more powerful than God? The devil can't get me out. As a matter of fact, all of his demons put together do not have the power to get me out of his hand. I have the promise of Jesus himself. He'll not cast me out. And on top of that, I, he says, I will never perish. Is that not clear? You know, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. I have faith that God means exactly what he says. Amen. That Jesus meant exactly what he said. Now, that's just in the book of John. Uh, we could use some other verses, but I've got a number of points I want to give you. If you need more time, we'll give you more verses from Jesus Christ himself. But I would say that's pretty authoritative right there. He says it over and over again. He's consistent. He never contradicts it. Number two, Paul taught it. Go over to the book of Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at a number of places where the apostle Paul taught the eternal security of the believer. In Romans chapter 8, we've got a passage here that goes from verse 28 on to verse 39. Just the whole passage together. Notice beginning in verse 28. He says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now the Calvinists want us to read it like this. For whom he did foreknow, he predestinated to be saved. But that's not what it says. You understand that God does know who's going to believe on him and who isn't. But God doesn't make anybody believe on him. Now God knows that because he's God. He knows everything. There's not anything God doesn't know. Amen. He knows that. But whereas he didn't make me get saved, he knew I'd trust Christ as Savior. He knew when. He knew I'd be at WAOP radio station in Otsego, Michigan. But he did not make me get saved then. 
But let me tell you what he did do once I trusted Christ as Savior. Once I trusted Christ, those that he foreknew, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, if God predestines anything, it's done. It's like the second coming of Jesus. How do I know he's coming back? He said he is. He's predestinated that. He's coming. He's coming in his time. No man knows the day or the hour. So he's predestinated that I be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is absolutely vital. By the way, it is vital, especially as far as eternal security of the believer is concerned, because if you could lose your salvation, since I'm already predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, if I died and went to hell, that means there's going to be a whole lot of people, little Jesuses, burning in hell. You see, the teaching of losing your salvation is actually blasphemous because of what it's teaching. Turn over for, keep your hand here because we're coming right back to it. But for just a moment, go over to 1 John chapter 3 and notice verse 2. I'm going to be like Jesus. I fall far short now, but one day I'm going to be like Jesus. If you're saved, you are too. And look at verse 2. He says in 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see, he's predestinated us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that's what sanctification is all about, to be more and more like him. But we continue. We go on to verse 30 of Romans chapter 8. The scripture says... Uh, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he called, them he also justified, that is, to be declared not guilty by God, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now get this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? What's the answer? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so here's how he concludes this whole argument in verses 38 and 39. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right? He gives a list of things that absolutely cannot separate us. That's us who are believers. That's who he's writing to. 
cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, and notice what they are. He said, I'm persuaded neither death nor life. Now, really, that's everything. You're either dead or alive. There's nothing in death and nothing in life that can separate the believer from the love of Christ, or the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But then he goes on. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. Of the world that we cannot see, angels, principalities, and powers. The devil himself cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of the demons or all the demons put together cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I could imagine, since the angels have to see so much of what believers do, that I would not be surprised that there might not be an angel or two that gets sick and tired of watching us in our sorry testimony in being unfaithful to God, that they'd want to separate us, but even they can't separate us from the love of God. You know, the angel Michael, the angel Gabriel, I'm sure they get disgusted. I mean, one angel, you realize, in the Scripture had the power to kill over 100,000 Midianites, just one angel. Think of their power, but none of them or all of them put together have the power to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But he's not done. He says, nor things present. In other words, of everything that's around us today or things to come down in the future, all the things that might come about in the future, there is nothing in the future, nothing around today that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's secure. But he's not done. He says, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. Now, God has limited himself on some things. For instance, in Titus 1-2, the scripture says, it is impossible for God to lie. There are some things God can't do. He absolutely cannot lie. He's God. What else can he do? According to this, he he can't even create a creature that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. He can't remember my sins that are under the blood. He says, in their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Hallelujah. Those are God's very clear promises. Now, a lot of people, they get confused because they remember their sins. And they think, God, how can God put up with it? Because, and he's God. How can he not remember Because he chooses not to remember. He's God. He can do whatever he says he can do. Hallelujah. There is nothing now or ever will be that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. All right. Now that's Paul in Romans. Turn on over to, uh, let's see, Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm not even using all the verses that deal with this, but this... These are so clear. Um, By the way, if these verses don't settle it for you, nothing's going to settle it. I mean, really. 
We go on. 13, 14. In whom ye also trusted. After that ye, ye heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. Remember the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Well, that is uh, found for us in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Here he says... Uh, ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom also after that ye believed. Ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So I have been sealed, and if you're saved, you have been sealed by the Holy Ghost of God until the redemption of the purchased possession. You say, what's the purchased possession? you he purchased you at calvary first corinthians 6 19 and 20 what know you not that your body is the temple of the holy ghost which is uh, which you have of god and you're not your own for you're bought with a price therefore glorify god in your body and your spirit which are god's he bought you with the shedding of his blood at calvary hallelujah so he says i'm sealed so i remember i'm in the hand of jesus i'm in the hand of the father Wrap the Holy Spirit of God around me. And for anyone to think you could possibly lose your salvation, you have to lose it to something that's stronger than God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that can't be done. But wait, go over to chapter 4, look at verse 30. For here he says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And he tells us how in the next verse, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Truth is, Christians grieve the Holy Spirit every day by their attitude toward other believers. But they're still sealed by that same Holy Spirit that they grieve till the day of redemption. That's the eternal security of the believer. The Holy Spirit, man, it's like... It's like a Christmas present that's all wrapped up. I mean, got that super wrap on it and it has a sign that says, don't open till redemption day. That's when it gets to be open. All right, go over to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Philippians 1 and verse 6. Turn too far. Philippians 1 verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that... He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? He, not you, he that begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Being confident, I say, and willing rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. If you could lose your salvation, there's absolutely no way you can know that when you die, you're going to heaven. No way. You say, well, I don't sin. You're a liar. Everybody sins. What is sin? What's the definition of sin in the scripture? First John chapter 3 and verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Even in James, he says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Are there any good things that you've not done? Yeah, plenty. You've sinned. 
But guess what? He hasn't. He still tells the truth. All right, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Notice verses 9 and 10. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned from to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, which he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. To suggest that you could die, if you're saved, to suggest that you could die and still go to hell would say that Jesus lied. He didn't deliver you. He has delivered us from the wrath to come. We go over to chapter 5, same book. Chapter 5, same book. Notice beginning in verse 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. He tells us to be awake, but whether we wake or sleep, we will be together with him. So why do we believe in the eternal security of the believer? Jesus taught it. The apostle Paul taught it. Also, the nature of salvation absolutely demands it. The very nature of biblical salvation demands once saved, always saved. Back to Ephesians again. Ephesians chapter 2, famous verses. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we're saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. It is not of works. To say that you can lose your salvation means that you have to do something in order to lose it. But if you have to do something in order to lose it, then you'd have to do something to get it. And if you had to do something to get it, it's not by grace. If you work for something, you bought it. Or you've, I'm sorry, if you work for something, you've earned it. If you paid for something, you bought it. But something that is a gift, grace, where God offers you salvation by his grace, something you do not deserve. That's the nature of salvation. Now, if you want a good definition of that, if you'll turn over to Romans chapter 11 and verse 6, he makes this so very plain about grace and works. This is a key verse. This is a verse, really, I think every Christian ought to memorize, along with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Uh, they go together so clearly. Remember, he said it's not of works. Why? Because if you could work, if you could be good enough to get to heaven, then you could brag that you helped yourself get to heaven. You don't get to brag about it. That's God's work. Notice in verse 6, though, of Romans chapter 11, and if by grace, then is it no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. 
very, very plainly, either salvation is totally of grace or it is totally of works, the two do not go together. When it comes to salvation, either of grace or of works, not both. Once the other enters in, then the other one's out. So it has to be either grace or works. Grace, you don't deserve it. See, here's the problem. With people who teach it, you can lose your salvation. And here's one of the things they'll say. You mean you can get saved and then go out and take a gun and just murder somebody and still go to heaven. Now, what's the problem with that reasoning? The problem with the reasoning is this. It's that, well, if you did that, you don't deserve to go to heaven. Well, if you don't do it, you still don't deserve to go to heaven. Salvation is by grace. It's not in being good. It's not in not murdering someone. And by the way, I just don't believe anybody ever got saved and went out and just killed somebody. Ever. Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Now, maybe he might have joined a church and went out and killed somebody, but that's not, joining the church isn't salvation. It's important that we understand the clarity here that the Scripture gives us about this matter of being saved. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. As a songwriter once wrote, I got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So I need you to help me out. All right? In Romans chapter 3, notice beginning in verse 19. Know we not that... Uh, know we not, now, now we know, there we go. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. No flesh is justified by keeping the law. No flesh is declared not guilty by keeping the law because the law already tells us we've already broken it. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the laws manifested, that is made known, being being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, For there is no difference for all the sin to come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus." Where is the boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude. Here's the conclusion. That a man... Not of the message, by the way, just of this passage. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. The nature of salvation by grace through faith without works demands the eternal security of the believer. Because if there's anything that you can do to lose it, then you weren't saved by grace through faith without works. You have to understand that. God paints us in a wonderful corner. What's that? Can't lose it. Thank God. Who wants to lose it? Do you want to lose it? 
As a matter of fact, go over to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Galatians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 16. He tells us, Galatians 2 and verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified, a man is not declared not guilty by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If you could be saved by keeping the law, then Jesus did not need to die. And it says he's dead in vain. It was pointless for him to go to the cross if you could be saved by keeping the law of God. Now notice, he's made it very plain. The the whole book of Galatians is about being justified by faith. And there were some people who come into the area and they said, you trusted Christ when Paul preached, that's fine, but that's not enough. You've got to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised according to the law of Moses in order to stay saved. So he's writing to refute that. He doesn't stop with the discussion at verse 21. Notice he continues in chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Now pay it careful attention. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's the answer to that? The hearing of faith. All right? That's how you receive salvation. So notice verse 3. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? So you think somehow being good enough is going to take you on to heaven? Thinking good enough now is going to take you to heaven? By the way, as I said, this whole book is about being justified by faith. There's a phrase in chapter 5 of this book that talks about you're fallen from grace. What does that mean? Well, those who believe you can lose your salvation means, uh, believe that it means you can lose your salvation. It's not what he's talking about. In this case, he's talking about falling from grace. Why? Because these people were not into sin. They were not into blasphemy. They were not into drinking and cussing. They were not into anything. They were trying to be as good as they could be so that they could go to heaven. They were trying to follow the law so they could go to heaven. Now, they had trusted Christ as Savior, and they rejoiced in it. They were happy in it. But now here they are miserable because somebody's told them, no, no, you got to do this and this and this and this and this. They're trying to be good. This is written to a bunch of religious people who are trying to be good for heaven. And he's having to rebuke them. Now, he's not rebuking them about being good. He's rebuking them because they're trying to earn heaven. 
And you can't. You're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. They had fallen from the teaching of grace that Paul had brought them. That's why he's rebuking them. He's not threatening them with losing their salvation. And people who take a little three-word phrase out of an entire book that is teaching the exact opposite of what they're saying with fallen from grace. That's wicked. That's just wicked. And as I said, it calls Jesus a liar and calls Paul a liar too. By the way, Acts 13.39, we'll go on to the next point. Acts 13.39, to wrap up this point. Did I say 39? I did. Okay. Paul is preaching on his first missionary journey. And in verse 39 of his message, he says, And by him, all that believe are justified from, notice this, all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. All that believe justified. I have been declared not guilty by God of all that I was guilty for. I'm justified. Because he took my sins upon himself, he paid the debt. Now, why do we believe in once saved, always saved? Number one, Jesus taught it. Number two, Paul taught it. Number three, the nature of salvation demands it. Number four, the work of Christ ensures it. Go over to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. This is vital, man. If you've got salvation, rejoice in it. You don't have to walk around in fear and trembling that somehow you're still going to slip into hell. Either Jesus meant what he said and Paul meant what he said, or they didn't. The nature of salvation, then, is not what God says it is. To teach you can lose your salvation is to call the God of the Bible a liar. Notice in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 9, the scripture says, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, underline, which can never take away sins. Remember the priest at the Old Testament temple, they offered sacrifices all the time, but none of those sacrifices could take away sins. Matter of fact, back in verse 4 he says, For it is impossible to blood of bulls and goats could take away sin, took the blood of Christ. Verse 12, but this man, speaking of Jesus, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering, now get this, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And yet those who don't believe, once saved, always saved. That is, once truly saved, always saved. Those that don't believe that say, no, he didn't. They are denying that he perfected or completed forever them that are sanctified, set apart. Those that are saved. All right. Matter of fact, we go on. Wherefore, the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said 
before, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my law in their, into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And I love this. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. True? He says it. It's got to be true. If you can't trust God with what he says, then you don't even know how to get saved. I mean, really, because how we, know to, how, how we know to get saved is recorded for us in the Scripture. And God gives us certain promises when he saves us. 1 John 1, 7 says, And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. I want you to turn over to uh, uh, 1, uh, 1 John chapter 2. I want you to get this. Do you know... That nobody goes to hell for their sins. Now, I know that sounds shocking. It's not shocking at all when you realize what Christ did. Notice what it says in verse 1. My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, notice that propitiation. That word means he is the covering. He is the satisfaction for our sins. But he says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of who? The whole world. Do you realize that God settled the sin question by putting his son on the cross of Calvary? How many sins did he die for? He died for all of them. He's the covering for all sins. God took it away from being a sin question to being a son question. That's why he can say, he that hath the son hath life. He that hath not the son of God hath not life. He that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. The question is, what are you going to do with the son? If you'll accept his sacrifice for your sins, you'll accept him. You get life. You don't, you die and go to hell. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John three thirty six. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Why? Because Jesus has paid for the sins. Now you have to accept the pardon that he's bought. He's bought, he's paid for it. Now you must receive the son. You receive the son, you get life. You don't, you die and go to hell, period. That's what it's about. It's never been about how big were your sins? How many sins do you have? How many sins do you have compared to what other people have? It's all about what are you going to do with the son? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's plain. It's a matter of the son. S-O-N. Now, what about then the work of salvation? The very work of salvation as well. You say, are you ever getting through? Yes, I am. I'm only so far along. Number one, when I got saved, 
I became a child of God. In Galatians chapter 4, turn to Galatians chapter 4, and notice beginning in verse 4. There's a reason God uses these terms. Galatians chapter 4, uh, notice beginning in verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has set forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. When I got born again, I got born into his family, and he made me a child of God. If you've trusted Christ as Savior, then you have been made a child of God. Now, what happens when a child of God does wrong? There are some people who want to believe that he throws them away. And yet, now, we had two children, and um, they weren't perfect. There were times that they did wrong. I mean, after all, their mother had something to do with this. So there were times they didn't do right. Never did I throw them away when they did wrong. When they were not right, they were still my children. Do you understand that? By the way, they were still her children, too. What did we do? Well, we did the same thing that God does to his children. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Here's what God does to his children. If you are saved, here's what happens to you when you do wrong. He makes this very plain, beginning in verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So everyone that he has received as a child of God, he chastens them and he scourges them. How important is that? Look at verse 7. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Do you realize as a child of God, he's going to chasten me. And that is a proof of being a child of God, that he chastens me. Now, he says in verse 11, Now, no chastening seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. It's not pleasant when he chastens me. And by the way, uh, my dad had uh, whipped me a few times, and we'd literally go to the shed uh, that was behind the house, and he would apply, you know, the belt where it needed to be applied. 
There was never a time when I was over my daddy's knee and that belt was coming down on my rear end that I was wondering, I wonder what's going on now. I wonder what's happening. I knew what was going on. I knew who was doing it. By the way, I also knew why it was being done. Now, we don't always apply discipline in the correct way. And I'm not preaching on discipline tonight. I'll do that another time. I'm preaching on the fact, by the way, with our daughters, I mean, brought up in church, and because they hung around deacons' kids, sometimes they'd get in trouble with them. No. When they got in trouble, I chastened my children. I didn't chasten the other kids that got in trouble. You know why? They weren't mine. I chastened my kids. God chastens his kids. He doesn't throw them away. There's some people in teaching that you can lose your salvation. They're saying that we're better parents than God is. They got God throwing his children away all the time. Every time they do something wrong, that's ludicrous. Doesn't happen. So we see him here. Not only that, not only are we made sons of God... Number two, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Uh, Matter of fact, that's exactly what he says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. When I was preaching down in Ocala this week, uh, they had a missions breakfast. And so I went in for the missions breakfast, and I asked one of the people, where am I sitting? Now, they could have been smart Alex and looked at me and said, you're standing, you're not sitting. Because I was standing up when I asked the question. But they walked me over to the table, and at the table, there was a sign that said, Dr. Mike Allison, that's where you're sitting. And I could have been a smart Alex and said, no, I'm not, I'm standing. As a matter of fact, that was there before I ever walked into the building. As far as they were concerned, I was as good as there. That was my seat. We are seated already with Christ in heavenly places. I'm talking about those of us who are saved. My name's there. Hallelujah. It's already a done deal. It's already settled. Not only that, we are made members of the body of Christ. You can write this down. We don't have time to read all these verses here. But 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. We are members of the body of Christ. Now, of course, that passage lets us know why we have different gifts um, in serving the Lord. We're part of the body. We're different parts of the body. For those who believe you can lose your salvation, believe that Jesus is having amputations all the time. That the body of Christ is being amputated all the time. Uh, you lose your salvation, you get cut out of the body. That's nonsense. That's ridiculous. Doesn't happen. I'm a member of his body. Not only that, I am predestined, we already read those verses, to be like him by his power. Romans 8, 29 and 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. So, 
That's what salvation brings. Let me give you a couple of biblical examples and then we'll be able to wrap the thing up and we'll be done for the evening, all right? Bible examples, this is absolutely key. If you could get it and lose it, there would definitely be Bible examples that you could lose it. But there aren't any. Turn over to John chapter 6. Because some people want to say Judas Iscariot had it and lost it. No, he didn't. And the passage makes it very, very plain that that's the case. Jesus teaches some very difficult things in John chapter 6. Some of his disciples murmur at it. And according to verse 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now notice. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? So now he's talking to the twelve. I mean, this is James and John, this is Peter and Andrew, this is Matthew, this is, uh, this is all of his disciples, Thomas, Bartholomew, it's all of them, and Judas is there. Simon Peter speaks up. Simon Peter answered uh, him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Now Jesus corrects him. He thought all 12 of them belonged to Jesus. Jesus answered them, have not I chosen you 12, and one of you, underline it, is a devil. He doesn't say one of you will be a devil. He says one of you is a devil. And the next verse says, he spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him. Here is one who never had salvation. He was always lost. He did not come to Christ and then lose it. He was there for all the wrong reasons. He never got saved. Hey, there are a lot of church members going to die and go to hell because they never got born again. That's just reality. Being a church member doesn't protect you from hell. Being saved protects you from hell. For that, you must be born again. All right? There's another one that Jimmy Swaggart used to like to use on his TV program, and that's in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21. When he went about trying to prove that you could lose your salvation, he read beginning in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Now it's very, care, uh, it's very important that you look carefully at what Jesus answered them and what he's going to answer them. He says, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Now, you remember in John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. These were not people that Jesus knew. Otherwise, Jesus would have to say, I knew you, and now I have forgotten you. No. He said, I never knew you. Every church has its own group of phonies that he doesn't know because they've never gotten born again. They may have signed a card. They may have lived a life where a lot of people might even taught Sunday school. 
they might have gone out knocking on doors with the rest of the church. They might have participated in the giving program. But they never got born again. They're not saved. They're lost. These guys did many wonderful works. But he never knew them. They never got saved. These people are not an example of someone losing salvation. There is no example in the Bible of anyone losing salvation. Now, here we had that statement in the negative. We've got Bible examples of people in great sin. For instance, take David. David commits the horrible sin of immorality. He commits the sin of murder with Uriah the Hittite. And when it comes time for David to get right in his confession prayer, in the book of Psalms, chapter 51, he says, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He did not say, Lord, restore unto me my salvation. He said, Lord, restore unto me the joy. Because if you allow sin in your life, your joy is gone. Well, and one of the reasons it's gone is because he's going to be chastening you. But after a year and a half or so of not being right with God, he wanted that sweet joy that he had had when his walk was with God as it should be. So David is an example that, hey, he didn't lose his salvation even with those terrible sins. What about the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or chapter 5, verses 1 through 5? Here was a man taking adultery with his father's wife. And it's interesting, you read the passage, Paul never doubts the man's salvation. He says, turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't doubt his salvation at all. Here's not a man who had it and lost it. Here's a man who got into sin. And at the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 13 through 15, he declares every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive reward. If any man's work be burned, he shall suffer loss, though he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. At the judgment seat of Christ, even those whose works are burned are still going to heaven. He never doubts their salvation. I'm simply saying to you, if a person could lose their salvation, there'd be examples of it in the Bible and it's not there. I would say if anybody would have lost their salvation, it would have been Lot. But God calls them in the New Testament just Lot. He was just, he was righteous before God. Even living down in Sodom and Gomorrah what he, what, where he was, even being part of that whole culture, not to saying that he was a Sodomite in action or belief, but nevertheless, you would think if any man, you look at what he did with his daughters, they, they get him drunk so easy. And the incest that takes place, but God never even hints the man's lost. Now, most of the people who say you can lose your salvation will say that you can repent and get it back. But how in the world can you say that? It would mean Christ would have to die all over again. Either he's already paid the price for your sins or he hadn't. He's not collecting again. And there would be an example somewhere in the Scripture of someone who was saved that got lost and then they got saved again. 
Not only that, if you could lose your salvation, what would it take to lose it? You say sin. How much sin? How bad sin? Now, they want to play with this because they've got no scripture to back them up on saying that uh, what it would take to lose it. They want to say, well, yeah, we all sin, but if you sin and then you don't get forgiveness. All right, so what if I sin? By the way, think of Adam and Eve. Now, they were not saved in the beginning. They were innocent in the garden. They were not saved. But what did it take for them to become lost? They didn't commit adultery. They didn't chop down or burn up the Garden of Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't chop it down. They didn't harvest all the fruit that was on the tree and steal it and sell it someplace at the market and make money on it. God said, the day you eat thereof, ye shall die. When they ate of the tree, that's when they died. As far as we know, only one piece of fruit had to be involved. That was it. And they died. Friend, if you could lose your salvation, the next time you had a filthy thought, you'd lose it. The next time you were unkind to somebody or said something wicked, you would lose it. The next time, therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. See, the wages of sin is death. So if you could lose your salvation, then there's any time you sinned, you'd lose it, which means you'd have to keep getting saved, losing it, getting saved again, losing it, getting saved again, losing it, getting saved. You don't find any of that in the Word of God. Heaven is not the incentive for living good. God is the incentive for living good. Hell is not the incentive for living good as a believer. Christ is the incentive for living good. If you could lose your salvation, at what point? If that be the case, if you could lose it, then no one could know they're going to heaven because next year you might do something to lose it. But he says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God not only wants us to have eternal life, he wants us to know that we've got it. Now, I have given you, I don't know how many verses, I've not counted up the number of verses that I have given you tonight, and they are extremely clear. And when someone comes along with three words taken out of context to tell you you've fallen from grace, which means that you have lost your salvation, which means that Jesus would be a liar, Paul would be a liar, salvation is not by grace through faith like the scripture plainly says that it is, that it's of works and not of grace. I mean, those people are wolves that you need to avoid. So, well, I need my faith to increase, all right? Faith cometh by and hearing by. The Bible says, he that turneth away his ear from hearing the law even his prayer shall be abomination. We need to hear God's word much more than he needs to hear ours. Oh, we want God to hear our prayers. God says, I want you to hear my word. If you're not willing to hear my word, I'm not going to hear your prayers. Now, that's not taking away salvation. 
God wants you to put his word where it belongs as first place in your heart so that you can grow. That'll answer most all the problems that you have. But you stay out of the house of God, then you end up getting fed all this nonsense. This is key stuff. God's written his book so we can know that we have eternal life. I appreciate your patience tonight. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Dear God, this is preached tonight so that we not be blown about by every wind of doctrine, but that we stand on the very clear word of God. Lord, please. There might be someone here tonight that's not even saved. I pray tonight they'd come and get that matter settled for all eternity. They could tonight. Father, have your way in every life. In Jesus' name I ask it.